I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. Murderers come in all shapes, colors, and sizes. A person can murder out of rage, fear, or even love. They can plot for years or take a life in an instant. Some may do it only once in a lifetime, while others want nothing more than to keep killing. We've talked about all sorts of murderers, from those with low intelligence to those who had the brains to potentially solve the world's problems. There are the lurkers who never made friends, those that totally blended in, and those with standout personalities that the neighbors and friends would always say he was never the type to murder. Today's case is about one of those men. No one expected him to commit murder. A man described as religious, kind, smart, friendly, a man devoted to his family. This is the case of Christian Longo. He was charming, he was cunning, and he was counterfeit. Nestled between the cities of Newport to the north and Yahats to the south, the small town of Waldport, Oregon has access to not only the Pacific Ocean, but the Alsea River and Alsea Bay. The local motto in Walport is, where the forest meets the sea, a truly perfect description. I myself have made several trips to the area, dating back to high school when a group of us started renting a beachfront home for spring break. What I remember most is that in order to get groceries and food, we typically traveled to Newport to do those things for a little bit more variety. Waldport was quiet. Businesses closed early and there weren't a lot of indoor activities to do. But with ample vacation homes and hotels, it makes for an incredibly peaceful way to unplug from the world. Whether watching waves on the sandy beaches or fishing in the Alsea River, there is so much you can do to lower your stress and connect with nature. Violent crime isn't really prevalent in Waldport. However, overall, it does see its fair share of property and drug-related crimes. When it comes to violent crime, the averages are about 1.56 per thousand residents. And since the city has little more than 2,000 permanent residents, that means they see two to three cases a year. What's interesting about this town is that in the north, your chances of being a victim of violent crime are two times more likely than in the south. I find that fascinating since it's so small. That means there was like, like the one north, person. Yeah. So like the <laughs> north end of this little town just yeah. has a higher crime rate. It's very odd. And I don't know if it's because of the neighborhood or maybe there are more stores. How I'm not really sure. Of course, when you take into account that folks who do not permanently live there are in the area pretty often, the numbers may skew. And though it's incredibly unlikely you'll get murdered in Walport, it has happened. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Vaughn Mater, a former truck driver, was in Waldport to visit his parents. He lived in Newport, 15 miles to the north, and often made the short drive down. On this particular day in December of 2001, his parents weren't home, so he got out of his vehicle and walked around the property to have a smoke. As Mater wandered around, he found himself at the edge of the slough that the property was directly next to. As he looked down, he saw something unexpected floating in the tide. As he processed what he saw, he said out loud, oh my God, several times, as he realized it was the body of a small child. He quickly called 911, and within 10 minutes, police and emergency vehicles arrived. Mater watched as the small boy floated further away, and a deputy went into the water to retrieve him. He spent the next few hours answering questions about what he had found. No, he had never seen the boy before. Yes, there were marks on his body. 
made her worried because the property had a toy water gun that his mother used to train their cat. Was he perhaps drawn to the toy from another home at the Bayview Mobile Home Park where his parents lived? No, that wasn't the case. Police concluded that the boy was a victim of homicide, not some wandering child who drowned in the tidal pool. Tracking down a child's family shouldn't be hard to do. It was easy to know what child was currently missing, and there were no missing children in Waldport. Police sent his small body to the Bateman's funeral home to await autopsy and began the challenge of attempting to identify him. It was thought he was between the ages of four and six, and it was clear that he had been dumped into the slough. There were no signs of malnourishment or abuse. He looked very well taken care of. The boy had been discovered at roughly 11 a.m. on December 19, 2001, and based on his examination, he had been in the water for 8 to 10 hours. That meant that he was likely dumped in the water between 1 and 3 in the morning. On Thursday, December 20th, a press conference was held to let the local media know about the boy. They hoped this would mean they could find his family. The next day, they began circulating a digital image of the boy's face created by the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. A woman named Denise Thompson came forward. The boy looked familiar to her. She made friends with a new co-worker, and sometimes she babysat for him. And the boy looked just like his four-year-old son, Zachary Longo. Christian Michael was born on January 23, 1974, in Burlington, Iowa. His mother, Joy, was barely out of high school when she decided to marry Stephen Stewart. Soon she gave birth to another son, Dustin. Joy couldn't take the fear and pain of living with her husband, Stephen, much longer. He was an angry drunk who took out his anger on her, and then one day, when Christian was just a little over three years old, he took it out on him. This was the final straw. She left him and got a restraining order, followed shortly thereafter with a divorce, and before long, he was out of their lives forever. Joy had moved with her boys into her parents' home and got a job at the front desk at a Target store. It was there that she met her future husband, Joe Longo. The two had a whirlwind romance and they eventually married, and before long, Joe legally adopted Christian and Dustin. Joe was promoted and the couple moved to Indianapolis for a few years. During their time there, Joy became a Jehovah's Witness. Apprehensive at first, Joe ended up fully accepting this lifestyle and even quit his job at Target so that he could raise their family devoted to their religion. Eventually, the family found themselves living in Ypsilanti, Michigan. The entire family was very involved in their witness congregation, and both boys regularly conducted door-to-door ministry. Though he was incredibly bright, Christian did poorly at school and started showing signs of deception in his teens. He would do typical teenager things like sneak alcohol, but also more serious things like using his parents' credit cards to buy things for himself and for girls. In 1990, Joe and Joy Longo decided to take a vacation to Arizona. Dustin and Christian would be staying with friends, but they wanted someone to take care of their home while they were away. They hired a woman named Mary Jane Baker, a member of their congregation, to house-sit for them. Christian, a young teen, was completely infatuated with Mary Jane, even though she was seven years older. One big problem, she had a boyfriend. He bided his time and gave her attention and made her his friend, you know, the long game. And eventually, she broke up with her boyfriend and Christian caught her eye. It worked? Yeah, girl. Wow. That's what I... He's a... Persistent. He would buy her flowers. They made a friendship. She would visit him at work. And, and over time, it worked out. He plotted it. Wow. 
The two began dating and it quickly grew serious. He desperately wanted to ask Mary Jane to marry him, but he didn't have the money for a diamond ring. He decided to purchase one on a month-to-month plan, but he came across a month he couldn't afford to pay. This is the first time he stole from someone other than his father. He took $108 from the register of the camera store where he worked. He ended up writing a check for the money when his employer questioned him, and despite returning it, he was still fired. When Christian decided to ask Mary Jane to marry him, his parents were not supportive. He was already on thin ice with the witness elders, thanks to his roommates who tattled on him about the money. He was given a slap on the wrist and had a few church privileges taken away for a short while due to his misconduct. Despite trouble at church and his parents being completely unsupportive of him marrying at the young age of 19, Christian married 26-year-old Mary Jane on March 13, 1993. By the time Christian and Mary Jane were starting their family with the birth of their son, Zachary, Christian was well into a large financial debt. He liked the finer things. He wanted to spend money, money that they didn't have. And what he ended up doing was maxing all of their credit cards. So he began looking for creative ways to spend more, like opening credit cards in his father's name and running up the bill to be dealt with later. This resulted in his father taking legal action against him. He began coming home with extravagant things despite their lack of funds, like the time he brought home jet skis claiming he won them in a raffle at Office Max when really he bought stolen goods for cheap from a friend. He eventually got a boat and a tractor from the same friend as well. As their family grew, so did their overwhelming debt. He was doing well at work, but the debt just kept piling up despite. Though Mary Jane was aware that money was tight, as debt collectors often called, she didn't really question it when Christian brought home a new Pontiac Montana van for her. He would provide. In traditional witness families, the man always provides. Eventually, she did start to question him about the vehicle and bills and potentially their relationship because she found herself digging around in his computer. Mary Jane realized there was real trouble when she read the email. This email would irrevocably unravel her life as she knew it. They had been married for seven years, and this was the first time she truly realized something was wrong in their relationship. They had bumps before, but those were trivial in her eyes. She had been devoted to her husband and he to her. They both were dedicated to their children and their religion, but now it appeared a third person had interfered with their marriage. Christian hired a woman named Jessica from the congregation as an assistant. After working closely together, the two began an emotional affair. Christian and his married lover have never admitted to being physical with each other, though he was willing to spend hundreds of dollars to help fly her to visit her family, and that's when money was so scarce for his own family. When Mary Jane confronted her husband, he said he was confused and that he didn't think he loved her anymore. Why, you might ask? Well, because she focused on her kids too much. Despite the affair, Mary Jane and Christian agreed to work it out. This, however, gained the attention of the witness elders, and multiple people began getting involved. Christian would be on a temporary ban from all church activities. Within months, troubles in his marriage grew to troubles with the law. Christian found himself with a significant financial issue at work. His business, Final Touch, had massive debts, and he was struggling to find a way to pay the $15,000 payroll. This was what he paid them every two weeks. This led him to make the decision to leverage a vendor that owed his business money to attempt to ensure he could feed his family and pay his employees. Since he was unable to get approved for a loan, he devised a clever plan to pull this off. 
he found a template for the same check the company used in his QuickBooks program. He then started writing himself checks. Each one was little more than $2,000, but before long, he had taken well over $17,000 from them without getting caught. So he kept going. After getting away with this for two weeks, he wrote bigger checks, one for nearly $4,000. This time, the bank had problems. They asked him to wait, and he could tell it was getting a little suspicious. As the teller said she needed to go get the manager, he left the bank. As he got home, he pulled in to find a police officer waiting for him. They took him to the police station for questioning and eventually admitted to what he did. The mind-boggling part on this is they checked his license, they did not ask for his registration, and they did not run his plates. Had they, they would have realized the car was stolen. He's just driving around town with a stolen car. His admission resulted in Christian's arrest for forgery during the summer of 2000. He had cashed checks for nearly $30,000 total. Rather than sending him to jail, he was given probation and told to pay back what he stole. Despite avoiding jail time and getting forgiveness from his wife, this was the last straw for the witness congregation elders, and they decided to disfellowship Longo. Basically, he was shunned. Even his own parents weren't allowed to talk to him. Now, in witness world, this can eventually be lifted. However, they didn't give a timeline on when or if that would ever happen. As you can imagine, this was incredibly hard on the whole family who wasn't disfellowshipped, and the Longos decided to move away from Michigan. Longo sold his house, which he thought would leave him flush with money, but after paying some debts and taxes on the sale, he was left with only $8,000. He decided to rent a warehouse in Toledo, Ohio. A, this is not a place you're supposed to live. This is literally a storage warehouse. And B, his probation did not allow for him to leave the state. So this was entirely illegal, but they did it anyway. He used the $8,000 to pay the first month rent, and then he told his wife he had paid six months rent. Then he intended to use the rest to begin renovations on the warehouse that would allow them to have a bathroom and kitchen. That, however, would take time, and until then, the family lived in very rough conditions. Eventually, his lies and crimes caught up to him. The family came back one day to the warehouse to see police outside. He managed to drive away undetected and distract his family. But it was clear that Christian knew the police were looking for something. And that was probably all the stolen machinery stored in the warehouse. They returned later to the warehouse to find that all the stolen machinery was removed, but most of their stuff was still there. In a matter of hours, the family packed up anything they could fit in their stolen SUV and, not surprisingly, stolen moving truck. And they were on the road to another home. They made their way out west camping, staying at cheap hotels, and purchasing only gas and fast food. Several times on the trip, they would stop so Christian could hawk things like their television and even Mary Jane's wedding ring. They went to Portland and on to Seattle, realizing these places were too expensive and jobs were too competitive. Eventually, they found themselves at the Oregon coast. It appeared the Longos were ready to stop and make Waldport their home. After running out of money while staying in a cheap hotel, Christian began stealing some of the furnishings to pawn for money to buy things like Top Ramen. It was that bad. The same financial troubles were continuing to follow them. Christian eventually got a job at the Starbucks inside the Newport Fred Meyer. While working as a barista, he made several friends, friends who had no idea that he regularly lied to their faces. 
He was anything but proud of having this particular job. After all, he considered himself very intelligent and competent and had previously owned his own business. He insisted that he was in town with his rich family and that he only got the job out of boredom. It had nothing to do with money because he was making his own wealth online through his trading businesses. His lies were so effortless that his co-workers never questioned him. Soon he befriended a woman named Denise Thompson who would become a close friend and confidant. She would become a major cornerstone in what would be known as one of the biggest tragedies Waldport has ever seen. Denise and her husband started to grow a strong friendship with the entire Longo family. They had regular family nights and even babysat the Longo children. Everyone at the Fred Meyer seemed to find him friendly, charming, and incredibly efficient. That opinion was about to change. We'll be back with the case of Christian Longo after this short break. The Longos invited their friends Macon and Denise Thompson over for family dinner on December 15, 2001. After dinner, Denise offered to babysit so Christian and Mary Jane could have a date night. The pair went to the movies and saw Ocean's Eleven at the theater in Newport, after which they returned home between 10 and 11 p.m. According to Christian Longo, that evening the couple experienced problems. It seemed Mary Jane was growing suspicious of Christian. She was clearly sick of moving from one sad motel to the next, and knowing his history with counterfeit checks, she started to ask what else he was hiding. The next day, he slept in and worked a shift at Fred Meyer from 2 to 11 p.m. No one recalls seeing the Longo family on December 16th. Longo went on to work another full shift on Monday, December 17th, but he had the following day off and decided to go up to Wilsonville, just south of Portland. There, he decided to stop at a town and country Dodge dealership. Longo parks his vehicle nearby and removes his license plates. He then makes his way around the dealership, going inside, shooing away salespeople until they leave him alone, and he notices several of the cars have keys inside of them, and he makes a bold move. When no one appears to be looking at him, he gets inside a Dodge Durango and drives right out of the indoor showroom through the open glass garage doors. Oh, my gosh. In my brain, I'm picturing the lot. And he's like sneaking around the farthest corner and like peeking over the top to make sure no one's out there. He did it from inside. Inside. And get this. No one noticed for 24 hours. The people no one that, was like, hey, why is that one? Why is our display model? They heading just out? assumed somebody was out test driving, which is weird because usually you don't test drive the ones yeah, in the building. Those are the ones you can like look at all the details and then you go drive one. Yeah, it's That's... very bold. It just shows you like how uh, how he thinks he can get away with anything. Well, I'm sure given his history and then the fact that he had just seen Ocean's Eleven. I'm sure he was extra. Uh-huh. He wanted to be empowered. A yeah. After lifting the Durango, he returned home and ended up going to his work Christmas party. Here he participated in the gift exchange where he contributed an unopened bottle of his wife's perfume. He didn't stay too late at the party because he had a 5 a.m. shift on Wednesday the 19th. He was working in his new position in the home furnishings department of Fred Meyer. This was thanks to a recent promotion. He spent the day with his manager, Scott, and told him that his wife had recently left him to go back to Michigan with their kids. This was similar to a story he told his friend Denise. She had heard all about how Mary Jane was leaving Christian for another man who worked for CNN, and she was taking their kids with them. 
In fact, he went as far as to say that he drove her and the kids to the airport. That same day, when Christian Longo told his colleagues that his wife had an affair and was leaving him and taking their children away, Zachary's body was found in the Lint Slough. Zachary was found wearing nothing more than a pair of underwear in the icy waters of an Oregon December. Once his autopsy was complete, it was determined that he died of asphyxiation, though the medical examiner couldn't offer much more information on how. Zachary was eventually identified by Denise Thompson, the friend and his babysitter, and it's noted that she was possibly one of the last people to ever see him alive. On Thursday the 20th, Christian did the same 5 a.m. to 2 p.m. shift. After work, he went to the gym to play some volleyball, and that's when he heard an announcement on the intercom. A little boy's body was found in Lint Slough the day before. His description was given, and this is maybe the time when Christian Longo decided it was finally time to stop parading around as normal and leave town. He casually stopped by his work to pick up his paycheck, one that would be his last from the Fred Meyer Starbucks. He didn't plan on going back to work for his shift on the 21st. Instead, he packed up what he wanted and he promptly drove to San Francisco. He even applied for a Starbucks there, but changed his mind within a couple of days. He wasn't going to stay in the U.S. Instead, he booked a flight to Cancun using a credit card number he had stolen from a Starbucks receipt. Three days after authorities pulled Zachary out of the water, they made yet another horrifying discovery. On December 22nd, the body of three-year-old Sadie Longo, Zachary's younger sister, was found in the same waters of Lint Slough. She had been dropped off the Highway 34 bridge into the waters below. Near her body, the diving crew found a pillowcase that had a rock inside. It had been twisted shut and tied to her small body. Like her brother, the method was undetermined. It was clear to police that the children had been dropped into the water from the bridge at roughly the same time. They were found distanced from each other due to Sadie having been weighed down. It was likely Zachary had also been weighed down, but that he came loose. After news came out that there were now two deceased children found in the water near that particular bridge, a man came forward with information that he saw something very suspicious on that very same bridge days prior. Around 4.30 a.m. on December 17th, Dick Hawk, a construction worker, was on his way to work near Waldport. As he drove along Highway 34, he saw a maroon Pontiac Montana minivan parked in the middle of the bridge. The man stopped to ask the driver if everything was all right or if he needed help, and the man said he was fine. He claimed to have seen his check engine light come on, stop just to make sure everything was okay. The man, satisfied that he didn't need to assist the driver, went on his way. He thought nothing of the exchange until he saw the news reports about the children's bodies being recovered from nearby. As investigators tried to make heads and tails of where Christian, Mary Jane, and Madison Longo were, they continued to track down whatever leads they had. It was quite clear that the Longos moved around a lot, and oftentimes abruptly and typically at low-budget hotels but they were occasionally able to get better accommodations. Their most recent dwelling was in a condo on the shoreline of Yakina Bay, north of Waldport. Christian was able to convince a manager of a high-end condo to allow him and his family to move in and pay weekly in cash rather than monthly with credit or checks. The manager confirmed to police that the family recently left without notice or payment and many of their belongings were left behind. Upon hearing this, investigators immediately went to the residence to expand their search. 
several pieces of women's and children's clothing, family photos, and Mary Jane's wallet with her license inside were discovered in a dumpster outside the condo. Authorities decided then to search the waters of the bay. On December 27th, two green suitcases were located under a dock in the Embarcadero Marina. The marina sat across from the condos the Longo family had lived in. The first suitcase, the larger of the two, had hair sticking out of the zipper. Inside was the nude body of Mary Jane Longo, crumpled into a fetal position. Her face showed signs of trauma and she had blood seeping from her nose and mouth. The smaller suitcase was opened and inside was the body of two-year-old Madison Longo, covered in piles of clothing and sitting next to her was a five-pound scuba diving weight. She was wearing nothing but a diaper. The medical examiner concluded that both Madison and Mary Jane showed signs of head trauma and strangulation. The two were dead before they went in the water. The hunt for Christian Longo intensified on the 11th of January. The FBI added him to the most wanted list. There were massive amounts of resources put into looking for him, and it wasn't long before they got wind of his Starbucks application in California. According to the store, they called and left a message for Longo, inviting him for an interview a week later. The FBI decided to lie in wait at the interview. Unfortunately, what they didn't know yet is that he was gone Yoloween in Mexico and he would not arrive for the interview. The same day he made the most wanted list, a Montreal woman notified the FBI that she had seen the man that was being flashed as a wanted criminal on the news. She described how she recently visited Cancun, arriving on December 27th. There she met a man who called himself Brad, but later he said his name was Mike. They were both at the same hostel and she had just returned home two days ago. Christian Longo's time on the lam ended a few days later on January 13th, 2002, thanks to a tour guide from Tulum. The guide mentioned that he saw a flyer looking for Christian Longo, and he was positive a man fitting that description was on one of his eco-tours. They sent plainclothes officers to the location the guide referenced, a beach called Santa Fe, and one of them spotted Longo outside of the cabanas. They busted into Longo's cabana that night and took him into custody. As they took him away, they left a very confused and frightened young woman behind in his cabana. Christian Longo used several identities, social security numbers, and credit cards for years. What's interesting about one of Christian Longo's recent identities is that the person is not just alive and well, but not the average Joe Schmo he would normally borrow identities from. When he was in Mexico, Longo decided to tell people he was journalist Michael Finkel of the New York Times. He made several friends throughout the duration of his trip, even writing down fake email addresses so they could keep in touch with him. He made himself sound like a man on the rise. He eventually met a woman named Janina Frank. When he found out she was a budding photographer, he convinced her he was in Mexico to work on an article, and he told her they should collaborate. He knew he could get her photograph published alongside his article. The pair even started a romantic relationship and shared a cabana. That was until the FBI burst inside. Of course, she had no idea who he really was and what he had done. That would be horrifying. I can't even imagine spending, I think it was a couple of weeks together, doing everything, sightseeing, trusting him, thinking he's helping your career. And to be like, I met you a couple days after you, I mean, she spoiler thought he was alert, single. killed your whole family. 
It's terrible. I can't imagine how she looks back on that time. Or like trusting people or trusting strangers. Mm. Michael Finkel, the real one, got a call at a time where his career was falling apart. He got the call the night before the New York Times planned to publish what he had done. And when they did, he knew it would be challenging to get a job. When he picked up the phone, he learned that the call was from another journalist. He assumed they had found out the news before it was published. That wasn't the case. The journalist on the line wanted to know what his thoughts were on the murderer that had been using his name. Finkel was immediately intrigued that some stranger would pretend to be him and go on the run after such a horrendous crime. This gave him an idea. He did fantastic work and formed connections all over the world, and he risked a job any writer would kill for, all because he was insecure. You see, Finkel had fabricated a story. He was on assignment in Africa where he was supposed to highlight a single boy working as a slave on a cocoa plantation. When Finkel got to Africa, he realized there were no slaves. All of the men and boys he interviewed were willing to work for the farmers. So rather than tell his boss he couldn't deliver on the original story, he formulated a plan to make a composite character. He used the name of one of the boys, Yusuf Mali, but weaved a quilt of a story based on several people's accounts of physical abuse while they worked on the farms. His piece was wonderful, albeit an entire sham. He thought he could get away with it, but then he got a call from someone from Save the Children, a UK-founded organization that provides education and health care to those in need internationally. This person started to ask questions. They knew Yusuf, and they knew his story had major plot holes, and the photo was of a different person. He tried to talk himself out of it, but was ultimately forced to go to his superiors and tell the truth. Now that he was facing the loss of his job at the New York Times and possibly an end to his writing career as he knew it, he saw Longo as a major opportunity. He could follow the story and write a tell-all book, but he needed Longo's involvement. He immediately wrote a letter to Longo explaining who he was, and to his surprise, Longo called him. After a rigorous quizzing and conversation, he eventually agreed to Finkel's plans. The pair quickly formed a bond, one that most would never understand. What started as a reporter dedicated to a story and willing to regularly engage with a likely murderer turned into a friendship. The two needed each other. Longo could build a narrative he wanted people to hear, and Michael could attempt to salvage his dying career. They're also both liars and identity thieves. That is true, my friend. So, you know, just some bonding things. Commonalities there. While awaiting trial, Longo maintained his innocence. Then, just before the trial began, he changed his plea. Even Michael Finkel, who had grown quite close to Longo and regularly heard and read Longo's descriptions of what had happened to his family, the only media person that Longo ever spoke to, didn't realize what he was going to do until he did it. Longo just insinuated in one of their last conversations that he had a surprise for everyone. Longo's new plea was that he was guilty of two of the murders. He continued to claim innocence of the murders of Zachary and Sadie, but for Marianne and Madison, he decided to plead guilty. This was pretty shocking, and the court was notably interested in the turn of events. The judge asked multiple times to confirm that this is really what Longo wanted, and he'd ask him, did you consult your attorneys? And every time he would answer yes. 
What we haven't really talked about before on the show is that when you murder a child, you can be held accountable for two counts for the same act of murder, one for the murder of a human being and another for the murder of a child, usually when they fall under a specific age. Here in Oregon, that age is 14. This meant that while he pled guilty to up to four counts for the murder of Zachary and Sadie, he was willingly pleading guilty to the murder of his wife, Mary Jane, and his daughter, Madison, which would be up to three counts. And he was doing this without the protection of a plea deal. As you guys know from the recent episode, What Happens in the House, the murder of a child under 14 is a capital punishment offense. Usually, in cases like this, there would be some sort of deal formed between the defense and the prosecution. This often results in taking the death penalty off of the table and agreeing to a life term. That is not the case here, and everyone was very surprised at Longo, someone that intelligent, measuring at an IQ of 130, would willingly do this. Going into his plea... Was Mike's understanding that he was not guilty or that he was believing Christian saying he wasn't guilty? It's complicated. And I think I think if we had Michael Finkel in the room right now, he would say to this day he doesn't really know what happened. He bought a little bit of the story that I'll get into. Um, it was almost like he knew he did it, but but could like justify it in some sense. Like, or like I don't a know. journalistic space. Or he of... put it away so he could get the real story. Like yeah. he really wanted to be the one to get to know this guy. And maybe he just forgot about it because he actually liked him. Right. You know, it's maybe it's easier to ignore and forgive if you just really like a person. But I mean, they wrote letters weekly, if not daily. They had weekly phone calls for years. What's up with you, Mike? What's your deal? He had to dig himself out of a hole. That's a long pause. I Well, because I just, I don't care how deep the hole is. hey yo. Well, that's when you get into like, the ethics. Hey, best friend. You get into the ethics of true crime authoring. And I'll talk about this in the end, but there's some major differences between the authors that wrote about this case. I'm sure. He somehow managed to alienate those that even despite his flaws stayed close to him. Over the course of the trial, Finkel, Longo's journalist friend, slowly began to see the truth of who Longo was. He was truly despicable. When looking at all of the evidence and testimony before them, it was clear what he had done. Everyone fully believed he killed his entire family, though his story that he told the court was that he killed his wife because he found out she had killed their children. So here's what he tried to say. After work on the night of the 16th, he walked into a half-empty apartment. His two oldest children were nowhere to be found. His youngest was laying unmoving on the floor of the bedroom. He admits to killing his wife after learning that she was to blame for Sadie and Zach's death. He claimed that she had drowned them in a fit of rage and then strangled their youngest daughter, Madison. After he killed Mary Jane, he realized Madison was still breathing and he opted to kill her. Because what's a life if you're brain dead? So this is the story that he thinks is going to redeem him in court. Yeah, and it's very like, oh, that makes sense why you kept going to work and didn't call the police and then ran away. And then covered it up. That all, that makes sense. Their cause of death was indeterminate, so it could have been suffocation, smothering, or drowning. This was a stretch and the lawyers knew it. I imagine the lawyers could literally see their hope at a sympathetic jury just floating out the door. 
prosecution was confident they could prove otherwise. They had several key witnesses, including Denise Thompson, who could testify to Longo telling her he planned to divorce Mary Jane and that she left him for another man. Mary Jane's sister, Sally Clark, who could tell the court about his previous affair. The man who saw Longo on the bridge the morning Zach and Sadie would have been thrown into the water. And two new witnesses to help illuminate what had happened hours prior to the murder. Now, these two witnesses were added late, so the defense was able to stall the trial for a week so they could do background research. The witnesses, Mr. and Mrs. Krabs, were staying in the apartment directly above the Longos on the night of the 15th. Mr. Crab was startled awake at 2 a.m. by a loud thumping. He called the rooms directly to either side of him and no one answered, so he assumed it was coming from downstairs. This was confirmed when he complained to the office the next morning. The front desk manager said no one had been staying in the rooms on either side of him. This indicated that not only did the noises likely come from the Longo's room, the disturbance would have been after the Longo's date night and before Christian Longo was seen on the bridge early on the 17th. As prosecution worked to dig up anything they could on Longo, it came to light that he had sent a 15-page love letter to a female inmate using a letter drop that inmates had set up in the library. The prosecution was able to use this infraction to gain entry into his cell. The sweep of his living quarters was very lucrative for them. Firstly, a letter was found in Longo's cell from the notorious serial killer Keith Jesperson. He's known as the happy face killer. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll cover him at some point. The two had been corresponding, and in this letter from him, he details that if he pleads guilty to only half of the crimes, the DA might not prosecute the others. Now, of course, that's, you know, his point of view is of someone who killed many women, mm -hmm. likely women people wouldn't notice, right. not his own children. So right. it's a little bit of a different scenario A little here. bit. Just a smidge. The love letter he sent didn't do him any favors either. It definitely puts him in even a more negative light, if you can even believe that. Not only did he write about how he wants to sweep her off her feet, which is something a man grieving for his family would not want to do, but it had details about the crimes against his wife and youngest daughter. One of the benefits of the pandemic and the quarantine we survived is that a lot of people discovered their own creative outlet. True. I myself even started a new Golden Girls podcast, Always Be My Sisters. It's been a fun and easy way for me to be creative and share mine and Josh's goofiness with the world. And for every person who did start a podcast, there are probably five others who thought about it and never made the jump. Our advice? Do it. Everyone has a point of view and there is literally a niche for every interest. The hardest part of getting started is finding the right host. Well, not in our case. No, not that kind of host. A podcast platform. That's why we were so excited when we found Red Circle. Whether you are brand new and looking to start your show or you're ready to move on from your stale old podcast host, Red Circle is the place to be. The features are rad. When we were new to the platform, we took advantage of the built-in promo swap feature, which allows you to connect with other podcasts to help promote each other's show. They also make it so easy to add an advertisement, upload episodes, or read analytics, even for a non-tech person like myself. Not to mention, they make getting advertisers so much easier. We struggled for over a year on our old podcast host platform and didn't win a single ad. Two weeks with Red Circle and we had advertisers. 
If you are interested in making the plunge to podcast host software that is easy to use, attractive, and constantly improving, check out our show notes for a link to sign up for Red Circle. You can also find a link on our promo codes tab at murderintherain.com. Longo's narrative he toted in court was definitely flawed, and some of which was by his own doing. Much of what he said when he testified in court was directly contrasting his previous statements he made. He had said in a previous statement that the pair fought and Mary Jane was sick of the lies and the thefts. He never mentioned her flying into a rage. There was never any indication that she was a violent person. I think there's a more believable story. Maybe she threatened to end it with him due to all of his mistakes and the constant moving from place to place. Maybe he riled himself up with thoughts of his financial ruin and the potential loss of his family. Maybe he even realized he couldn't get out of the money issues if he had four additional mouths to feed. Or he couldn't stand the fact that his family might leave him and go on to live their life without him. Perhaps he was the one that flew into the rage and killed his entire family. Or worse, it was cold and calculated. That's where I lean. Me too. Because it's like... Everything else he's done, maybe it wasn't a huge plot, but it was like, okay, I'm going to go get a car. He has it in him to watch for people and plan it out. Like, even if it was 10 minutes of planning, he still planned it out and then stole a car. So it's like, you can't tell me he wasn't thinking, well, I'm in all this trouble with this debt. If I didn't have this family... I could restart my life and then go see Ocean's Eleven. Sorry to blame it. Like, it's Grand Theft Auto. But I'm sure that was like... No, you're right. That was probably pornographic to him. That's not the only one. He had rented other similar movies. And when they checked his computer, he had looked up ways to get away with things and, and things about murder and getting rid of evidence. So he's definitely plotted. Right. I, I think I think it was a slow build, though. Uh, you know, from someone who's think so highly of himself, it's really got to take a hit when you realize you have ruined your own finances and right. your family is growing away from I you. Bet, but I bet, he, I bet that wasn't it. I bet it was anger of, like, you're pulling away from me and, and I'm in you. control. And then who knows, going to bed, probably finances got brought up. Yes, and he, then, did, he did say that when he spoke to police initially. Yeah, and then next thing you know, she's strangled. And then, well, wait a minute. That was easier than I thought. Yep. I can just go down the line and start my life over. And I'll be a new man. And I'm sorry if I'm in the jury and the prosecutor opens with his kids were found in the water and we found him in a cabana in Mexico with, with a girl. A I'd be like, case closed. <laughs> like, yeah, what? There's no tale as old as time. Actually, we haven't had that many family annihilators, but the ones that have, it's Tend always very similar. Yeah. And it's like. Okay, thank you for being like innocent till proven guilty. You proved it. Thank you. Well, the jury agreed with you. Longo was found guilty on April 7th, 2003. It took roughly four hours of deliberation, but he was determined officially guilty of the aggravated murders of three year old Sadie and four year old Zachary. As the law allows, he ultimately received two murder convictions for each of his three children and one for his wife. Two weeks later, his fate was out of his hands during the penalty phase of his trial. 
prosecution was out for vengeance. They successfully depicted Longo, a seemingly well-natured man with the ability to befriend anyone, as actually a gifted con man who grew tired of having a family and wanted a way out. While he sat in his cell and waited for his trial for over a year, he was not a model prisoner. He wrote letters to other prisoners hoping to develop relationships. He committed several infractions and got into trouble with the guards. And there was even evidence that he was chipping away at the wall in an attempt to dig a hole big enough to get out, a plan he executed with another inmate. Now, in his defense on that, I think a lot of inmates do that. Right. That's not a shocking thing. In the end, really, they were just trying to prove that he was a threat if he was alive. The defense, however, argued that he had never been violent. That is, until he killed his family. Once he's found guilty and the charges, you know, the double charge because it's a child, mm -hmm. was there anything charge-wise, not sentencing, in regards to treatment of their bodies, the fact that they were no, disposed of? I think because he was up against capital murder in general, they okay. didn't bother with the little things. Okay. I, I hate to say little things, but I know you know what, what I mean. mean. It was more important to get him for the murder than Yeah, because it's not going to do anything more. They're seeking death right. penalty, and whether okay. they get it or not, it would be life or death. That makes sense. Longo himself admitted his wrongdoing. He spoke for 23 minutes, and though he didn't say Mary Jane didn't kill his children, he made several comments that indicated he was to blame. He apologized and seemed remorseful. But was it true, or was he again hoping for jury sympathy? And 23 minutes, how self-serving. Oh, I know, I know, Ugh, I know. Barf. In the end, the jury sided with prosecution again. After six hours of deliberation, they made up their minds— for the four murders, two of which he pled guilty on his own accord and two he was found guilty by a group of his peers, Longo was sentenced to death by lethal injection on April 16, 2003. In all these years, we will never really understand the motive. Was he sick of his family? Did he just snap? I think we can draw our own conclusions using the clues and kind of filling in the gaps. And there's a lot of reasons family annihilators do what they do. Longo's psychologist believed Christian is a narcissist, and he just couldn't take it when he had failed in supporting his family, and this is what drove him to end their lives. It's as if having no life is better than having a life of struggle. This does fall in line with some of the motivations of other family annihilators, but I like our point of view, which is just out of a selfish nature. Yeah, it's almost... Um, I'm picturing... <laughs> Uh, in Silence of the Lambs, they're talking about Dr. Lecter and when he killed someone, but he was hooked up to a heart machine and his heart rate never got up like above 90 or something. And it, based off of what you said, it kind of feels like that. Like he almost as flippant and not concerned as taking out the trash. He's just like, ah, I'm just like, done like that's yeah I'm, I mean obviously it was building up and all the financial stuff but just kind of like uh I don't want to do this anymore I'm gonna try again I see it in like two else. different ways too was he did he get a thrill out of doing these things and being able to get away with it or oh, yeah. is he just like a total sociopath and it doesn't phase him he's totally confident and doesn't have fear it's really hard to say without more study it's like uh the one dude the most recent family. Chris Watts. Yeah, that there are a lot with. of similarities. Um, but his really he did seem to have more like, well, he had crime panic of passion mode. and well, he panicked, too, and right. like wasn't as clean of a of a 
ending, you know? Yeah. And with Christian Longo, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah. I That's what that makes thing. me think he plotted it out a little more than, say, Chris Watts. Because, I mean, it was, had he not screwed up his own, like, stuck around town, like, he right. probably could have gotten away with it. Right. Like, yeah, if he the didn't family go to has work disappeared. for three days. Yeah, they didn't pay their rent and the family disappeared, which they always do. Which he could have just said they moved away. Yeah. But I think he liked it there or something. I, I, I'm very confused by that. Or again, his ego. Yeah. Like, look, I look how cool I am. I can kill my entire family and serve you a coffee or sell you furniture or yeah, whatever. Like baffling. I think that was from what from other cases we've covered. It feels like that's the thing. That's kind of the F you to society or to cops or whatever, where it's right. like, oh, yeah, I'm capable of doing all that. And living my life because I'm so amazing. Well, despite the verdict, Longo still continues to strive for his dreams, and he did so by becoming a published author. Now, he had always told Michael Finkel in their letters that he had dreams of being a writer, that if he could choose his own career path, he likely would have done that. And I don't know if that was to, like, stroke Finkel's mm, ego a little bit. Right. I'm like, look how good of friends we are. But perhaps the relationship actually did inspire him. Longo wrote the book The Forsaken Gift of Life, an expose of the pointless ban on prisoner organ donation. Now, I didn't read it because I'm not going to give my money to a book, especially when I don't know where that money is going. But the gist of it is an argument that by allowing inmate organ donation, we could help the shortage of organs for those in need because we have about two million adults in jails and prison. Now, this isn't really a topic I've given much thought to, so I did a little bit of research. It appears that most prisons do not allow prisoners to donate organs unless it's for an immediate family member. There isn't currently a law that specifically states they can't donate. It's just highly discouraged. Now, the primary reason for this is that prisons are high risk and that prisoners are more prone to infectious diseases. Other sources suggest that it's actually about consent. In the real world, you're giving your consent in a free and non-coercive environment, but in prison, that doesn't really exist. And I thought that was actually an interesting That's point of view. That's very interesting. It's also like jarring, I guess would be the word, that he decided to write something and it's well, it how all to came help out. people and how to... He read an article that a man was seeking a kidney, I believe, and he offered his kidney. I think it's some sort of repentance or whatever. And the man said, no, thank you. And I maybe he's, you know, just kind of growing this desire to, like, make change, which if that's the case, that's kind of cool. I could see the benefit. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I hate that he's, like, being successful at something. Yeah, that's I mean, but then it's also like, isn't that what we talk about about the being the purpose of jail to actually yeah is he doing what do we good want people to do and to rehabilitate even if you're never getting out isn't that the point you know yeah it's like it's that's hard we have it's to hard stick to our own guns who's to be like, such a liar to like yeah. even consider that maybe they're actually making changes well because and also you you look at that and you go that's really great i've never even thought of that i've never known of that or it's just not ever something i've considered so that's great that he's trying to bring attention to it and make changes that can save people's lives. But also it's like, is is this again is something that's real? just to serve yourself mm -hmm. to say, oh, look at look at what I did. 
Now, I honestly don't see the other side of the argument. I kind of agree with him. And maybe I'm missing something. But like one of his Amazon reviews say, when you need an organ, do you really care who it comes from if it's given willingly? And I think I agree with that to an extent. Yeah. I'm sure that's part of it, too, is not only the health factor, you know, because of drug use that tends to happen in prison and health in general in prison. So I I can see where people would have concern on that, even though uh, organs are checked. You know, it's like you mm-hmm. don't just throw something in someone. Yeah, you would have to test it and make sure it's healthy. But also it's like how much of it is the stigma? How much of it is someone going, I don't want a murderer's kidney. Well, on that note, I'm going to bring something else. I have more on this case, but I'm going to bring something that came to my mind when I was thinking about it. So I don't know if you watched the movie Body Parts. Have you ever seen that? Body Parts. Who's in it? Uh, F if I know. Um, You know, some... It's from the night. It's from 1991. So basically the premise is there's this psychologist working in a prison and he's on his way to work one day and he gets in a really bad car accident and loses his arm. Now, the doctor or a doctor, I don't know if she worked with the prison or what. She approaches him and says, do you want to be part of this experimental transplant? So he gets a new arm and weird stuff starts happening and he's having really bad dreams. And then he finds out one day that the arm was from someone on death row, Mm. that there was this experiment going where they would take body parts from people and kind of sell them off. Now, I won't tell you the rest of the story, but it's actually it's actually one of my favorite like early 90s um, flicks. To be honest, I remember seeing it and being like, what is this? (laughs) I'll add Um, it to the list. But it's funny because the point of view about the consent and kind of the stigma around um, infection, that all was really pushed in the early 90s. And this movie happened to come out in 91. And it made me wonder, was there some thoughts about that? Like, was, was that impacting people's decisions? That's interesting. I mean, in in the concept of giving your organs isn't. You know, to be clear, it isn't on death row. It's not saying we're going to lethally inject and give away their organs. It's people willingly giving up a piece of their liver or a kidney. If I naturally die because while I'm in prison. Not not even that. Just like willingly. Like you can have a kidney. I have another one. Oh, and living donation as well. Yeah, right. So then I could see the argument a little bit about cost and having to care for them after. But what if the person getting the organ is willing to pay for that? You know. Yeah. I don't know. Which which everyone, I mean... All kidney donation is that. So if I donate one, it's not a cost to me. Oh, really? It's covered by the medical, and uh, sometimes you can get work covered for the couple weeks you have to take I off. I didn't know that. Um, travel, all of that stuff, because it's all through the other person's insurance or funding. So, fun fact. Now, on the topic of writing, the writing that Longo really excels at is letter writing to his pen pals, which are predominantly women. In fact, one of his pen pal relationships became romantic. The woman had reached out to Longo because she was drawn to him. Initially, he began engaging with her because he thought she was unattractive and that it was safe. That's what he told Finkel. Now, eventually, he grew an attachment and the pair wrote tons of letters, sometimes daily. And then she started visiting. She lived about 40 miles from the prison and would come twice a week. She had a child uh, from a previous marriage, and he eventually proposed to her in the prison, and she went out and bought her own ring and everything. That March of 2004, 27 months after the death of his family, he had found himself a new one. 
that's not the only one. So that ended up ending. They broke it off. But what's interesting oh, is he told Finkel, hey, guess what I'm going to give her as a special wedding present? A book that I hand wrote about what happened to my family. That's what he was going to give her. Now, by them not getting married, that means the book was never finished and we never get to see the contents. Uh, but she wasn't the only one. You better start flirting. No, gross. Get that book from him. So another woman came forward to Finkel and this just got me thinking. We've talked about this before about how women do this. And I didn't realize there's actually a name for it. Did you know oh, that? No, it's called hybrisophilia. It's a sexual interest and attraction to those who commit crimes. It's a type of paraphilia, which is an abnormal sexual desire. So this actually means that you're getting sexual arousal, facilitation and attainment of orgasm in response to your partner having committed a crime. So it turns you on. I won't kink shame someone, but this is way beyond a kink. Well, like you're it, bringing a child into it and like, oh, you are you have a stepdad now who's, oh, he's just a guy that killed his whole yeah, family. Yeah, screw your own life up. But when you have others involved, like whatever. And just the way I saw a shirt um, on Instagram the other day from a fellow podcast that I can't think of right now. And it just said, serial killers are not hot. Yes. And I'm so glad that the but narrative this describes is it. So I never knew because I, I wrote it right here. This explains Ted Bundy. He's not good right. looking. He apparently just ent entices people who have this paraphilia, which makes total sense. Now, this is more commonly known as Bonnie and Clyde syndrome. Oh, and yeah. I, now you say that I'm like, oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But I had no idea this was a thing. It's, it's so upsetting. The whole, yeah, just attracted to and then kind of not even catfishing because you know who each other are but just any show I watch like The Circle or Bachelor or whatever where you haven't had any real interaction and they're like oh my god I love you so much I yeah. love you to death oh my god I'll do anything it's for like, you yeah and Big it's Brother like, they, the relationships go so fast yeah and it's just like this number one is not real mm -hmm. number two no just no I, I know. I, I'm just glad that there's like a medical term. Yeah. Because I, I have always found it so uh, frightening. I get that you might have a mate who commits a crime and you it's stick totally with them. Totally different. Totally different. And yeah, it, it's totally different to seek out yes. someone who's done it because Two you children. think it's hot. Two children when you have a child. Yeah, it's really, really frightening. That's mm -mm, no. So for those of you who are wondering, where is he now? He is uh, still on death row. He did appeal it in 2006. They upheld the sentence. But in 2020, I don't know how many states are doing this, but Oregon State Penitentiary eliminated their death row. So the sentences still exist, but all of the people, 27 of them, went back into general population. Because our death penalty is still on pause, it's on pause basically. based yeah. on our governor. We have yeah. two back to back governors who don't believe in it. Right. Um, but they, you know, they still have their sentences. It's not like Washington where they were converted to life sentences. Right. But they just don't have to live isolated anymore. And, you know, a lot of people push back on this, but I don't see it changing anytime soon until maybe the governors change. But also it's like people think, oh, the governor is making that decision for all of us when that's well, we not vote what we things. want or whatever. <laughs> but it's like. The governor, that's their that's the last call. So if that yeah. governor doesn't want to live with that for the rest of their life, that's OK. Like, <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like that comes that's like a president deciding to bomb something or not. Like those lives are on them. And if the governor is like, hey, guess what? I don't want to live with 
making that call. What's interesting, too, is they apparently went through and called all of the victims that those 27 people impacted to let them know that. Um, But it makes a lot of sense now that I know I did send a couple of letters to some death row people Mm. for comment and they were like exchanging letters and stuff. Yeah. And I got got one back from someone I didn't write. So now I get it. They're in gen pop altogether. Yeah. So did he marry the second woman? He hasn't married. He hasn't remarried. He just has his letter lovers. I mean, anything to get through jail, I get. I, mean, I would imagine I would be a fantastic letter writer, too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I it's mean, just... he probably gets funds put in his account and pictures and all those things. Well, maybe not the pictures. They're pretty strict about that right. stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, I see what's in it for him. The oh, question yeah. is, what's in it for them? Yeah. And like the more famous you are or notorious, I suppose, would be more accurate. Yeah, then you're the you're the guy who's got all the money because you're the famous killer. It's yeah, that's just so upsetting. And it's tricky because, again, it's that blanket statement of how we talk about prison and stuff and we talk about reform and we talk about rights and accessibility and stuff. But then I turn around. And it's just like, you you know, we're out here and we're still having people going to court about gay marriage. We're and, and we're just letting people get married in prison, and that the interesting thing is that he nothing they can't even get conjugal visits. So even if they did yeah. marry, he's not going to like boink her. But it's just I I don't know I, I just I struggle with that because it's that is such a such a privilege I think that so many people have fought for for different oh, yeah. reasons for different people that seems like the scenario where you could take the rights away yeah and yeah. It, if that's the one thing hey oh yeah you know what you still got cable and you still got all this other stuff sure you can't get married I see it. your point anyway and you had said earlier before we started recording that while this case is known like I've heard this name a million times but I'm also an Oregonian that you suspect it's um notoriety or level of being known was maybe diminished yeah. because it happened so close to 9-11. Yeah. So I I don't pride myself on this, but I feel like I know all the major cases. And right. it was actually quite late into being an adult that I even heard about this case. Mm-hmm. And I think back to 9-11 consumed us yes. in 2001. I remember it very vividly how I found out and you know, I woke up. We had just moved into my very first apartment. I was sharing a bedroom with a girl named Janessa. Hey, Janessa. <laughs> and our beds hadn't been moved in yet. So we were sleeping on the couch. Our roommate turned on the TV and she was crying, woke us up. We're like, what's going on? And just time changed. Yes. Everything changed. We continually mourn for the people who risk their lives to save people and recover remains dogs people continue to get cancer from people that are still suffering it you know our airport security our lives were completely changed by it and so it did not get the media attention it would today right had you know had it happened today this would be chris watts yeah because he was uh conventionally attractive young um but yeah i didn't hear about it for years and and now there are shows covering it and people talking about it but I was just surprised by that compared to some of the cases that do get out in the media. Yeah, I wonder, too, if it was if it was twofold, if it was one, because this was late December, right? This was right around Christmas Mm -hmm. of 2001. So we're only a couple months out of of September 11th. And we we, all of our news was still talking about it. All of the news. So it's two parts of the news 
pushing it out of, you know, being the headline. And it was a tiny town in Oregon. And it's like, you know, we were all just waiting for SNL to come back to be like, can we laugh yet? Mm. Yeah, it could have been dismissed. Maybe it could have been like, hey, we'll talk about it to maybe help find the guy, but we don't need to bombard people with like dead children. But then on the other side of it, I was a college student trying to cope with 9-11 and paying my rent and maybe I wasn't paying attention yeah, either. Yeah, it, it could have been as covered as yeah, Chris so Watts maybe and nobody other knows. people out there are like, what are you talking about? I saw it every yeah. day on the news, especially if you live on the coast. But I found it very intriguing that he, it's a death penalty case that was actually held on the coast. Yeah. In their small Lincoln, Lincoln Yeah, nothing county. like that happens out there. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely consider that that was a factor. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe that's part of why we all know the name and it rings a bell, but we can't put our finger on what it was exactly because our brains were still like, what is the world now? I think I got pretty uh, well informed on it like 10 years ago. Mm. Yeah, I think I must have heard it on a podcast. No, it wasn't a podcast. I read it somewhere maybe. Yeah. For anyone interested in learning all of the details of this case, I have two book recommendations, both of which can be found on our website, murderintherain.com, on the Murder Reads section. First, Michael Fink, who is the very one who befriended Longo, did end up writing an autobiographical slash expose of the Longo case. It's really, really good. I was engrossed the entire time, but I have to say, knowing his background, I took everything with a grain of salt. Did they ever explain why Christian chose oh, yeah. Mike? I can't as, believe I didn't say that already. As a name or as a person to be? Yeah, it's a, it, Finkel asked him that. So in one of their many conversations, he said, well, why did you choose me? And that's when he initially brought up, well, I've always been into writing. I read the New York Times. I recognize uh, your name and blah, blah, blah. There I go. Also, like how don't be like, I'll choose someone that's I moderately, it's like moderately successful and uh, that's why it's in so the weird. New, literally in the news. Every because day. prior to that, he was just choosing people he either saw similar age who died and he would go oh, get yeah. their social security number or like credit cards he would steal. Like this was the first time it was someone of notoriety. And that's just, but little did he know that shit was about to hit the right, fan for this guy to make him like huge. Yeah. Anyway, so the book he wrote is called True Story, Murder, Memoir and Mea Culpa. And if you're wondering, Mea Culpa means acknowledgement of guilt. This later led to a 2015 movie version starring Jonah Hill and James Franco. I've yet to watch it, but it's on my list. I've heard mixed reviews. Yeah. Well, you know, Franco. The other book is by journalist Carlton Smith, who sadly died in 2011. He wrote for many newspapers and authored several true crime books. He and Finkel even talked and they thought about collaborating on this case, but ultimately they both went their separate ways. Carlton's book is called Love Daddy, the True Story of Accused Con Man and Family Killer Christian Longo. Now, I mentioned earlier there's some like point of very big differences in their books. And there is a few discrepancies here and there. So as you read, you know, keep that in mind. Right. But where Finkel gives out every detail from the names of all the witnesses, Carlton takes a more Anne Rule approach. He does mm. not use names. Interesting. And I well, and you know, I'm used to that with a lot of these true crime books. And maybe it's because he's a little more old school. I feel like Anne Rule was very careful about identity. She didn't yeah. want to traumatize anyone further. Um, 
I like Finkel's directness, but it is kind of that ethics thing. Mm. He's definitely a little more questionable than Carlton, who's a little more on the safe side with that stuff. Yeah, and that's always tough because it's like, well, it's public information and it's public I definitely record. fall to that. I use names a lot, and I've even done major research on Anne Rule's books with the newspaper yeah. to actually put in the right names. And yeah. I, you know, I question myself on that. I'm like, should I even do that? But I, I definitely yeah. appreciate that stuff when I listen. So I just made that choice. Yeah. But I, I, I respect how Carlton mm-hmm. wrote his book mm-hmm. too. So there's no final answer of what really happened that night. No, none other than he did it. No one else had anything to do with it. He made the choice. He killed them. He got rid of them. And The question is really, was it a snap? Was it a crime of passion? I truly doubt it based on his nature. I think it was a slow build, plotted, and executed thing. People like that almost don't seem like you could have a crime of passion because you don't care. You don't have passion. Yeah. I'm I'm a sociopath. I'm not going to get riled up, but you're inconveniencing me. Yep. And I don't think my mind will be changed on that. I believe it was plotted. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Even, yeah. I don't think the amount of time spent plotting matters, but definitely was like, yeah. This. And he's not someone I would want to engage with after reading Michael Finkel's story because it's very much he has charisma. Yeah. He will use it and then he's going to confuse you. Yeah. And sure. Lots of terrible people are OK friends. but That's really fascinating that Christian and Mike's relationship is really interesting to be like, you know, because Mike kind of they they used each other. Yeah, Christian needed his identity to be able to get away, mm-hmm. and Mike needed Christian to save his career. Mm-hmm. And they're both con men well, to I a think, degree. I think Michael one to an extreme slowly degree. realized, okay, he is not who I thought he was, and now am I seeing myself in a worse light because I became his friend? Were you drawn to him because you had things in common with? Yeah, and it slowly dwindled. The relationship dwindled after. The, you know, after he was convicted, mm. but he did talk to him on occasion. They wow. kept in touch. And then eventually he moved on to have kids and get married. But yeah, I, I it's an interesting case because we have that perspective of someone who purposely got close to an accused killer. Yeah. Bye. That's what like usually what we talk about. It's just like uh, Emily's writing. Emily's openings. Like Emily's writing. Emily's voice. I don't know why we we're do this with her. We're always talking about your openings. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I'm Violent crime isn't really prevalent in Waldport. However, overall, it does see its fair share of property and drug related. I did it again. I slurred. It's. It has been a. It's been a while yeah. since you've done your full case. We'll know your um, noise with your cheeks. Maybe oh that's what you mean. It's been yeah, weeks, months. Oh, You're right. That really loosens go. me up. If yeah, you know what I mean, I do. Me too. <laughs> me too. My butthole. <laughs> Baby, I'm from the north side of Walport. I've seen some shit. Oh, <laughs> what's happening? I swallowed wrong, and so it's like <clears throat> funky donkey in there. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? No, we got the funky dunks. I've never said that before. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but I know exactly what you mean. <coughs> My funky dunky throat. <laughs> now, he hadn't got well, going off script again, you fucking asshole. However, they didn't give him a timeline on when or if and if. Nope. <laughs>
<laughs> furnishings to pawn for money to buy things like top top ramen. <laughs> it was determined that he had died of his. Oh, here we go. <laughs> it was determined that he died of a. Oh, why? <laughs> of asphyxiation. Oh, God damn it. It's a longer sentence than that. <laughs> the Marine. Oh, that's the word I have a hard time with. Not embarcadero. <laughs> this coincided at a time where his career was falling. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Oh, it's a tickle in my throat. That happened to me a couple uh, weeks ago. That was, a, that was a big old funky dunk. Oh, I got one too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Your funky dunk was thick. Mm. Mine was sparse and tickly. Yours was thick. Sorry about my funky dunk. Oh, that was great. <clears throat> he somehow managed to alienate those that even despite... Displite? <laughs> That's an, we haven't had a made-up Emily word in a, in a, in a minute. An hour or so. <laughs> The asphyxi, oh, mama. You know what is to do. Is that what I sound like? No, you sound like that. I don't know. I have fucking oh, get my I don't know. I'm Emily. <laughs> to escape prison. Oh, I already said that. Cut that whole part. I don't fucking care. <laughs> do you have any details in the in your story about uh, his thoughts on Ocean's 12? Have a good funky donkey in the Ooh, toilet. funky dumpy. <laughs> <laughs> Me, 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 scoozy. <laughs> there isn't a law specifically stating that prisoners can't door doorgate their organs. What? Ma'am, call an ambulance. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. <laughs> Please put that in. <laughs>